0: Well, a big shout out to all the dads today. I hope this is a great day for you. And Grace Fellowship has so many amazing godly men who are fathers, and uh, you love God, you love your uh, wives, you love your children, and you're seeking to represent him well. Boy, I honor you and give a shout out to you today. You are a rare breed, let me tell you and may your tribe increase. Well, We're in a series called, yeah, good. Dads ought to be honored, and I I really believe that. We're in a series called Vital Signs, where we're looking at some of those characteristics of a healthy follower of Jesus Christ. But before we dive into the nuts and bolts of today's uh, topic, I want to go down one little side road for a moment. I think this is so vital because before you can be a healthy follower of Jesus, you just need to be a follower of Jesus. Amen. I mean, you gotta be in the family. You gotta be a follower. And the reason I mention this up front, and I just want to do this as sensitively as I can, it's simply as sort of a kind of a personal check, and I would ask you to kind of examine your own soul, your own heart. I think there's a lot of confusion around this topic. I don't know the sense that you get, but as I talk to so many people, I get the sense that the popular notion out there is that being a Christian, being in a relationship with God is really about just kind of doing some nice things, some good things like attending church every now and then, doing a few good deeds, Uh, so that you can be a good person and be acceptable to God. Well, that is not at all what Christianity is about. In fact, the Apostle Paul gave a challenge to people like that. He challenged people who were kind of showing up for worship and going through the motions of religion, and he said in 2 Corinthians Chapter 13, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Wow, why would he say such a thing? We see the Bible teaches that before we come to Christ, we don't, we're not really alive spiritually. Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, verse 1, he says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then later, he says, just a few statements later, and this, that statement he just made is true of all people, not just people who commit crimes, not just really, really awful, bad people. It's true of everyone. It's true of me. It's true of you before we come to faith and to a relationship with Christ. And then he says later that God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. So so let me just put it to you like this. Christianity is not about bad people becoming good. It's not what it's about. It's about dead people being made alive. That's really what it's about. And so that's why he, he says, he gives a challenge, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. You see, this is why I'm starting here today. This is why this is so important. When you're spiritually dead, These things we're talking about in this series are just going to sound like more religious burdens to you, honestly. Oh, no, more hoops I got to jump through. Just more of a burden to bear, and you're not probably even going to be that interested in them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. It cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If we don't have the Holy Spirit living in us, we just don't have spiritual life. But when we repent of sin and trust in Christ to save us, here's the good news. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and then we desire to please God. This past Thursday, uh, June the 16th, was my spiritual birthday, And I kind of recognize that every year. Thank you. Yes, by God's grace, I am alive in Christ. And hey, 48 years as a Christian, 48 years. I'm pretty stoked about that myself. And I journaled all about that and just thank God in my journal. But here's what I want you to get. When I really came to Christ as a 13-year-old 48 years ago, it's like somebody flipped a switch on. Before that, you couldn't get me in the Bible. After that, you couldn't keep me out of the Bible. Before that, I just wanted to please myself. I didn't really, I just wanted to kind of have whatever pleasure or good I could. After that, my overwhelming desire was to please God. That was the number one thing. So I wanted to get in his word. I wanted to know what he had to say. So I'm saying this with as much sensitivity and kindness as I can today. The reason a lot of people feel frustrated with their spiritual life is because they've not actually become spiritually alive. A corpse doesn't have a pulse. A corpse doesn't have vital signs. If we're not alive in Christ, if we've not come to him we probably have little or no desire to pursue the things of God. So uh, here, if you are finding yourself with no desire whatsoever to please God, the best thing you could do perhaps would be to have a conversation with one of the leaders in your church, one of the leaders at your campus, and and just talk to those leaders about how can I come into this vital relationship with God. And when you do that, he's going to stoke a desire in you to want to pursue the things of God. Okay, I just, just had to start there because without that, this is just another religious burden. But with that, This becomes an inside-out thing. You just do this stuff because, wow, of course I'm going to do it. It's what people who are spiritually alive do. They want to seek God. They want to please God. That's the overwhelming passion in the heart of every real disciple of Jesus, a passion to please God. So today, I want to talk to you about what I would say are two of those incredible vital signs that really show whether we are healthy disciples or not. And that is, do we have a sense of accountability to God? And and in that, I wanna talk about two of those factors that I believe more than anything else, perhaps as far as practical things, show whether we really are pursuing God and seeking to please him. And that is what we do with our time and and what we do with our money. I've said this to you for years. Show me your calendar and show me your checkbook, and I'll tell you pretty much where your priorities are in life. Now again, if you're not in Christ, forget everything I say today. Please yourself. Don't worry about pleasing God. Do your own thing. But if Christ is truly the Lord of your life, the Holy Spirit in you is gonna be stoking a passion to want to please God. So the question we ask today is, do I have a growing desire to please God in the way I steward my time and my money? And the healthiest Christians I know, I could just point to dozens of you in this church that this is true of, they know that everything they have is a gift from Almighty God, and they're responsible for how they steward that. And so I pray that in this message, God will stoke a greater desire in all of us to be better stewards and more accountable. So the first declaration is this, time is a gift from God, and we're accountable for how we use time. If we want to be like Jesus, then we're going to treat time like a spiritual discipline. We're, we're gonna realize that it's limited. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus only lived on the planet about 33 years. That's a short life by our standards. And yet at the end of that short life, Jesus could make this statement as recorded in John 17 verse 4, talking to his, praying to his father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Hey, when your time is done on planet Earth, wouldn't you like to be able to say that? What a cool epitaph, huh? I've brought you, Father, glory on Earth by completing the work you gave me to do. But if we're gonna accomplish that, if we're gonna be able to say that to any meaningful degree, we've gotta treat time like a spiritual discipline. Jesus made the most of every opportunity, and we need to do the same. You see, the thing that makes time so valuable is that it's so limited. If diamonds were as plentiful as the grains of sand on the seashore, diamonds would be virtually worthless, wouldn't they? The thing that makes diamonds valuable is that they're so rare. They're limited, and time is limited. And that's what makes it so Precious because there's this, there's, this limit, there's this limited supply of time. James writes in James chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Why? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And one of the persistent claims of Scripture, brothers and sisters, is that this world that we live in is passing away. You get the sense that it's moving fast. And it's going to be no more like it is. Look at a few of these verses that teach that. 1 John chapter 2, for instance. The world and its desires pass away. Or look at this one from 1 Corinthians what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Paul's passionately trying to get across to the Corinthian Christians, hey, I, I, I want you to not get bent out of shape about whether you're married or single or what's going on there, because listen, time is short. Live every day all out for God. And then he says just a few breaths later, for this world in its present form, is passing away. Do do you sense the urgency in those words? We have all these sayings in our culture, buying time, living on borrowed time, making up for lost time, restoring wasted time, saving times. But in a sense, these are all just foolish statements Because time is slipping through the hourglass, and it is slipping away from us. I mean, do you you know when that time is? When the world in its present form is really going to pass away? I don't know when that time is. As always, many are predicting that right now they're looking at all that's going on around the world, wars, wars. Rumors of wars, they're looking at pestilence and pandemics and famines and economic turmoil and political intrigue. They're looking at all this stuff, they're going, we are living in the last of the last of the last days, brothers and sisters, right now spoken of in Scripture. Is that true? I don't know. Some of you think I'm being flippant right now, but I don't really care that much. Here's why I can say that. Because I live every day. I want to live every day in such a way that I'm making the most of it. Whether my life lasts 50 more years or five more minutes. No matter what, I just want to redeem the time. So I'm not living on paranoia and living in anxiety all the Oh, Could this be the last? Who cares? I'm living for Jesus whether it is or not. Just me. I I hope you're running on that same octane. That's the way he wants us to live. I love Proverbs 27.1. It says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. I just want every day to count. I was reading some research about three weeks ago from the Kennedy Institute of Ethics, at Georgetown University, and I was just stunned by what I was reading. I read there that every year on this planet Earth, 65 million people die each year, 65 million. If you do the math on that, that means about 178,000 people a day pass away. It means that every hour, 7,425 people, it means that every minute, 120 people die in this world. Now, that means that since we started this message, over a thousand people have entered into eternity. Over, get this, over a thousand souls just since we started talking today. I'm kind of old school with the way I get information. Most people get information these days through podcasts, and I do some listening to podcasts, or they get it from uh, the news, some audio book or something. I'm still kind of old school with the way I take in information. I read mostly, and I do a lot of reading. I picked up a book recently. I love the title. How Not to Die. Isn't that a cool title? How Not to Die. Man, that's a brilliant title. It's by Dr. Michael Greger. And it's a fascinating book about preventing and even reversing diseases and prolonging your life. And I just find that fascinating. But you know what? The truth is, no matter how long we live or expect to live, the statement of the psalmist is just forever true. When he said in Psalm 31, my times are in your hands. Now, here's why all of this is so sobering to me. Because once time is lost, it can never be regained, And this is why I hope that God the Holy Spirit will drive this supernaturally home to your heart today as he has to mine. Man, I've just been reveling in this and thinking about this and journaling about this and meditating on this all week long and praying that God would do an amazing thing in our lives. See, here's the deal. If your health goes to pot, you can change some things and you may regain your health. Or if, in this economy, if your new business startup goes belly up, if it goes bankrupt, hey, it doesn't mean your business life is over forever. Many have declared bankruptcy and gone on to be successful in business later. You can kind of come back in business, as it were. And in a marriage, if a marriage was once healthy, but as often can happen, if you go through a season of distance and devastation and doubt in your marriage, it doesn't mean it's all over. If you humble yourself and acknowledge your faults and seek forgiveness, and if you're both willing to work together, you can often regain the health of your marriage, praise be to God. But listen today, once time is gone, you can never get it back. And that's why, to me, this topic is so sobering. You say, well, Pastor Rex, you're just a bundle of joy today. Oh, I know. (laughs) It is a sobering topic, isn't it? But that's why we need to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness when it comes to our time. And I just, I seek, I, I, I seek to live life every day with that realization. You see, Jesus' words just, Oh, they pierce me. When he said in John 9, he said, As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. And then these words are haunting. Night is coming. Night is coming when no one can work. Now we cannot slow the approach of night but we must be the best stewards we can be of every minute, every hour, every day that God gives us. I love a poem I memorized years ago. I have only just a minute, just 60 seconds in it. Forced upon me, can't refuse it. Didn't seek it, didn't choose it. I must suffer if I lose it. Give account if I abuse it. Just a tiny little minute. But eternity is in it. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Rex, Pastor Rex, I've wasted so much time in my life. Oh, I hear you, man. We could all get in that misery pool, couldn't we? I have wasted so much time. Some of you would say, Pastor, you don't know the half of it. I've wasted years of my life. Can I, can I just encourage you today? I'm an encourager. I would... I would encourage you to cop the attitude of the Apostle Paul. Don't wallow in that misery pool of regrets. Oh, all the wasted time. No, no. Forgetting what's behind. Pressing forward. Pressing on to what's ahead. That's the attitude that I would encourage you to take and make the most of the rest of your life. Hey, question how much time do you think you have on this planet? You say, dude, nobody knows that. Oh, I know nobody knows, but what would you estimate? Hey, over, probably now, a couple thousand people have passed away since we started this message. What about you? How much time? Did you say you got 10 more years, things go well? 20, 30 much time. For the sake of the kingdom, ask yourself, hey, if I'm going to make the most of every moment, what needs to shift in my life? What needs to go? What needs to stay? What needs to increase? These are the kind of questions that that I, I try to ask at the end of every year just before the new year starts, I try to ask myself those questions and and just make some needed changes in my life. Because here's the deal. Time is a precious gift. And healthy Christians get that and so they don't fritter their time away on trivia too much. It doesn't mean they don't rest. That's an important way of making the most of your time. You need the proper rest. It doesn't mean you don't have any leisure. That's another important part of stewarding your life wisely, but you don't just waste time. You realize every day is a gift from God and you wanna make the most of it because you realize, as Romans 14 says so starkly, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Bible doesn't pull any punches, does it? We're just, just going to give an account of how we stewarded our one and only life. So whether your life lasts five more years or, or, or 50 more years or five more minutes, live with that reality in mind so that you're making the most of this one and only life. But there, I want to turn a corner now and talk about that second aspect. I told you if you show me your checkbook and your calendar, I'll, I'll tell you pretty much what your priorities are in life. So let's, let's make this declaration. Financial blessings are a gift from God, and we're accountable for how we use them. How, how we use money for ourselves, for the kingdom, for others is one of those, I would say, huge vital signs that reveals our spiritual health. And and healthy Christians, healthy disciples of Jesus know that. They get that because they've read their Bible. And they know that this is a topic that is incredibly frequent in Scripture. It just shows up over and over again. And they know that it's going to reveal a lot about the health of their soul. It shows our priorities, our values, what we truly treasure in this world. Now, I've tried to study healthy disciples for years now. And And I notice when it comes to this area, here's the starting point for every really mature and healthy disciple that I'm aware of. Now, there may be others where this is not their starting point, but everyone I know, this is where it starts right here. They acknowledge that everything I call mine, I'm really just managing for God. It's not really mine. Uh, Consider, again, these truth claims that scripture makes. Psalm 24, for instance, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And then Paul essentially quotes that in 1 Corinthians where he makes this statement, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He's just quoting there from the Old Testament. And then... This next statement says, the whole earth is mine. God is speaking there to Moses and giving a message to his old covenant people. I want you all to know, it all belongs to me. The whole earth, it's mine. And then the book of Job, we read in chapter 41, God is speaking that. This is after Job and Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu and all these guys have been pouring out their thoughts, God comes in, he says, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I I think you'd agree. The message is pretty clear. It all belongs to him. Now, I say things when I'm talking to fellow human beings, like my yard, my trees, my shrubs, my flowers, my body, my car, my house, my clothes, my bank account, my investments, my future. But it really all belongs to God. I wanna be clear today. Rex Keener owns nothing, not a single thing. My understanding from scripture is that I am called to faithfully steward and manage all these things as God gives me wisdom and guides me to do so. And I do that knowing that one day, again, I will give an account for how I did that. That's not this big ominous thing. In fact, I believe it's something that a healthy Christian can kind of look forward to. I really mean that. I really mean that. Not because you're arrogant not because, hey, I crushed this. No, no, because you know that by God's grace, you've walked in integrity, you've done a faithful job, and you know it's very imperfect, but you know that God's grace covers all of those faults and imperfections. Now, here's I like the honesty we have around this place. So let me tell you what I believe. I believe that most Christians believe everything I've said so far in theory. But when it comes to what we actually do with these resources and things that are entrusted to us, that's where the rubber really meets the road. And that's what shows what we really believe about this. The question I think for a healthy Christian, it's never how much of my money should I give to God, but it's how much of God's money should I keep for now, because ultimately, I want it all to be used for his glory. Debbie and I were having a conversation recently, and we were talking about finances for the future and all that, and we had this conversation together, and we talked about the fact that we're pretty determined in our hearts that while we have always tithed to God in our lives while we're living, and that's something we're gonna continue, we would like to tithe to God not only in life, but in death. It's just a decision that, that we're, we're making. We wanna tithe to God in death. So we tithe in life and we, we're gonna tithe in death. And so we're gonna get that into our plans so that at least a tenth of whatever our state is will go to the Lord and to his work in making more and better disciples. We want to use everything he's entrusted in our care in a way that would please him. Now, if you ask me today, Pastor X, what is the passage in Scripture that is the single most motivating Scripture for you when it comes to being a good steward of money? Hands down, hands down, it's in Luke chapter 16. I, I, we're gonna put it right here. I want you to look at it with me, and I want you to see why, to me, just to me, this is such a motivating scripture. Jesus said, this is Jesus now, so it doesn't get any better than that. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And a lot of people said, well, if I had this, then I would, no, 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 Jesus said, no, this is a heart deal, guys, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever's dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? True riches. So, worldly wealth is not true riches, there's something that Jesus said is true riches, okay? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, God's, who will give you property of your own? Jesus is teaching here that how we handle worldly wealth, his words, not mine, is a clear indication of whether or not he will trust us with, get it, true riches riches. Again, his words, not mine. That's a staggering teaching. According to Jesus, the Father is looking at how we handle our finances as a test for whether he will deem us trustworthy with the deeper matters of the soul and deeper matters of the kingdom. That really motivates me. This is an amazing book. It's called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And uh, it's written by Donald Whitney. It's used in seminaries all across the country, training pastors, spiritual leaders, godly men and women for the ministry. And Donald uh, Whitney shares this insight. He says, suppose the owner of a lumber company privately decides on a certain employee to take over the business someday. Of course, the owner wants to determine if this employee can handle the business properly. So he gives him a part of the company to manage. This is probably what all of you would do if you were in that situation. The ordering and inspecting of new lumber to see if he can make it profitable. He watches very closely how the employee runs that department for several months, not primarily to protect the company's bottom line, but in order to determine his trustworthiness and abilities. If he doesn't prove trustworthy with this part of the lumber company, the owner certainly won't hand over the entire enterprise. But if he proves faithful with it, the owner will entrust him with the true riches of the company ownership. And then Whitney concludes, how you manage the financial, quote, department of your life is one of the best ways of evaluating your relationship with Christ and your spiritual trustworthiness. If you love Jesus, he writes, and the work of his kingdom more than anyone or anything, your finances will reflect that. That's why your financial records tell more about you than almost anything else. And I I believe... Whitney is right. No, giving is not an 11th commandment. This is motivated by love. And how we steward the resources God's entrusted are a clear reflection of our love for God. But here's the deal. The the motive of our giving is important. Let's suppose that for Valentine's Day, I give Debbie a dozen gorgeous red roses and I present them to her and she is delighted and she says, oh, that's so sweet. Thank you so much. And let's suppose I say, well, it's Valentine's Day, and my duty as your husband is to give some token of love. So there you are. I've fulfilled my duty. How do you think she would feel? I think she would tell me what I could do with those roses. I think she would be deeply hurt by my calloused, unloving response. But let's change the scenario a little bit. Let's suppose that when I present her with the roses and she says, thank you, I say, oh, sweetheart, are you kidding? You are the love of my life. I love you more than life itself. There's nothing I'd rather do than lavish gifts on you. Think about it. Same money, same event, Same gift, one gift's motivated by duty, the other by love. Motives, motives are super important. God wants us to give out of an extravagant heart of gratitude and when you think about it, when you consider that he's given you and me the greatest gift possible, the forgiveness of sins through the death of Christ on the cross, And that he continues to lavish us with strength for the the day and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. It should be pretty easy, really, to give with a cheerful and, and grateful heart. So as we wrap up today, I'm reminded of something from my past, the music of Jim Croce, some of you will recognize that name, really marked my childhood. His songs were popular uh, at the time. And one of his songs, the most, one of the most popular, is called Time in a Bottle. It's still played a lot today on the radio. It's a love song about how he wished he could save time in a bottle so he could spend it later with the one he loved. And that song became number one in America. But here's the eerie thing. By the time that song, Time in a Bottle, hit number one on the billboard, Jim Croce was already dead. The time in his hourglass had run out. There's only so much sand in everyone's hourglass, and when it's gone, we'll give an account for the time represented by every grain of sand in the hourglass. That doesn't make life morbid. No, it infuses every moment with meaning. So as we apply this today, I would ask you once again, what needs to shift? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you right now? What is he prodding? What is he pointing to? Because healthy disciples want to use every day for the glory of God. What is God saying to you in your marriage, in your relationships that needs to change? In the way you use time, in the way you handle resources, what needs to shift there? Father, we truly look to you that your spirit would guide us in these days when the world seems to be crazy and spinning out of control, and yet you've called us to be a sane, faithful presence in the middle of all the chaos. May our lives reflect your glory and may we show this increasing sense of accountability to a loving, gracious, generous Heavenly Father who's provided us with everything we need for life and godliness and so many things for us to enjoy. Thank you, Lord, that we can use every day and we can complete the work you gave us to do Keep reminding us, night is coming. Night is coming when no one can work. In Jesus' name, amen.